Hello. Hey, it's me. How you doing? I'm doing terrible. Oh my yes. goodness. Why yes. are you lying? I, well, I'm not. Yes, I'm lying. I am <laughs> lying. <laughs> I'm lying because my wife has listened to every single episode thus far. And she tells me that it cracks her up that every single time when you call, I always answer with like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good. And she just laughs at me over this. And so now I have to start with, I'm terrible. But the fact is, I get really excited to talk to you. So anytime you call and, you know, you ask me how I'm doing, like at that moment, I'm doing really good. That's awesome. So what I'm hearing from all of that is that your wife has corrupted you and turned you into a liar. Um, yeah. Did yeah. I get the right message out of all of that? You got the exact right message. Uh, yes. Yes. She should be ashamed of herself. Yeah, she should. Okay, but how are you? I'm doing great. Um, yeah, I am. I literally don't know that I have anything to say other than I'm doing well because it has been a very normal day today. Some days you just have a task list, knock that task list out, and then the day is over. And this was one of those days. And I don't get a lot of those days. So I love them when they happen. Yeah, that is pretty nice. So with your ordinary day with nothing really happening, do you have something on your mind or are we just going to talk about the ordinary today? No, though we should in fact talk about the ordinary. I would love to talk about that at some point. The role of ordinariness in spirituality and faith. But uh, uh, yes. Oh, I'm that, writing, that, I'm writing yeah. this down. Got to write I that think you're down. Right, you're right. That's a really good topic, but not the one for today. What I wanted to talk about today is right on the cusp of being the opposite of that, actually, in the way that it is commonly understood. And so what I was thinking about and what I wanted to talk with you about is the idea of calling. Mm. Just what does it mean to have a calling? What does it mean to find your calling? What is the concept of calling really all about? Is this something you spend a lot of time thinking about lately? <laughs> I do think about it quite a bit. And I think a lot of Christians spend time thinking about this. I think there's a lot of weight around this in our society. People really get hung up with what's my calling and am I fulfilling my calling? Am I being obedient to my calling? And how do I discern God's calling on my life? And what am I supposed to be doing? I feel like there's a lot of angst and yes. fear and a lot of pressure around this topic. Yeah, and insecurity. Yeah. Yeah, you're yep. exactly right. So um, I imagine that by the time they listen to the end of the ep this episode, we will have dispelled all their fears and all will be well. I can already feel the peace like a river <laughs> rolling over me. Maybe that's not right. But uh, all right. So tell me this. When you think of calling, what do you think of? I've done some thinking over the years about this. I've done some theological reflection actually at school over this. And so I'm actually going to give you two different answers. One is the answer I've carried with me up until doing that reflection. And then this is the other one that I'm growing into. So the mm -hmm. one I had before was honestly, I don't know if it was as crystallized as I'm about to say, but I picture God's calling of Paul right? All mm. of a sudden, just 
the Spirit of God shows up in the middle of the path and says, Paul, I want you to do this with the rest of your life. And Paul's like, holy smokes, okay, if you don't kill me, I'll, I'll do it. You know, right? Like, it's just this fear or the same thing that God showing up to Moses in the burning bush or God calling Abraham. or there, We have these stories all throughout Scripture. And so it's this very mm-hmm. clear calling, this moment where you just know but I love the fact, by the way, it captures so much of what I think we normally mean by calling that you had to deepen your voice just to say the word. This sense of calling. Yeah. Right? right? Like, yes. that is exactly what we mean when we say calling. Abraham and Paul and, you know, there, there have to be burning bushes and floodlights and spotlights and definitely angels and potentially torches wandering their way through animals that have been cut in half. It's got to be right. intense. Yes. Yes. And if you didn't get the last reference about animals cutting in half, um, please read Genesis before you like turn the podcast off. Um, so <laughs> Yes, that was a Bible reference. Where is that? Is that Genesis, I actually don't know, 15? The second time Twelve. Abraham? Well, uh, yeah, you're right. It might be the second. Somewhere the second between one. 12 and 15. You know what? Read it all. Yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be great. Anyway, so that's what you're, th- what, what else are you thinking about? So that's what I was thinking. But here's here's the fascinating thing that I was really caught by as I did some more theological study on this. Paul has a lot to say to all of his congregations and to all of his churches. He has no end of advice. And at no point did Paul tell his people, go find your calling. Mm, interesting. It just did, I hadn't thought about it. It didn't that. happen. Yeah. So Paul, <laughs> Paul isn't that concerned about everybody else finding their calling. And then I, I, th- I don't know if I read this. Or I, I actually think it was a professor that said this. Every example we have of, you know, this great calling kind of moment in Scripture, there was absolutely no way that the person being addressed would would have missed it. I mean, angels and torches and God showing up and all of these things, donkeys talking, whatever it was, you're not going to miss it. God's going to make it abundantly clear. But that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is much more like what we find in Paul's writings to his churches. Look, just love God and love your neighbor. Can we start there? Maybe that is just plain and simple, our calling. But what do you think of? It's funny that you end right there on our calling is simple. It's love God, love your neighbor. I'm going to pull my thoughts from a sermon that my wife actually shared with me from last year. Uh, My wife teaches at a Christian college, and she loves going to chapel every single week. And one particular week, a pastor from Vivid Church in Lexington, South Carolina, his name is Alan Kendrick, shared an insight on the idea of calling that absolutely struck a chord with my wife. And when she shared it with me, it struck a chord with me as well. I think because much of the time when I'm talking to people particularly people who are 
interested in ministry. They are trying so hard to get it right. Yes. And there is some sort of spiritual constipation that happens when you try (laughs) that hard to get it right. That was evocative. (laughs) But I think that's literally what it is. Like, you can try. I I remember when I was a, a kid, I don't think I've shared this on the podcast before, but when I was 15 or 16, I heard this phrase that you can hear from God. And so I, being a very simple and very literal person, sat down and strained my ears to try to hear God over Mm. and over and over again. And I strained so hard. It wasn't until much later that I learned that in reading scripture, I would hear the voice of God if I just tried a little less hard. If I just relaxed into it and didn't worry about it too much, I was far more likely to hear the voice of God. I really think trying too hard in certain circumstances, like figuring out what my calling is, hearing from God, fouls up our ability to actually do it. (laughs) So what he said, and I thought this was brilliant, he said that every believer has a calling the thing that the Bible uses by words like election. And those things are universal. We are called to be children of God. We are called to love God. We are called to love our neighbor. We are called to be part of the body of Christ. We are called to the same things. But within that calling, we have different assignments. Yes. And those assignments can be any amount of time long. So my assignment can change from one phase of life to another. My assignment can change because of my life circumstances. My assignment can change because of any number of variables in my life. And my assignment can change a little bit or it can change drastically. It's okay. And I think what he's getting at in this idea of calling versus assignment is really that the supernatural, profound calling of God, the thing that makes us deepen our voice, is to things that are universal mm-hmm. and that the other stuff is less significant. Yeah, I think you're right. We all, as Christians, have one giant general calling. And if we lived into that, it would change the world. And Mm -hmm. we might have different tasks at any given time within the grander scope of that, but those aren't the main thing. But I'd add one piece to that. And for reference, I'm going to pull a passage out of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter 4.10 begins this way, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And then it goes on to give examples. And I think this is a very fundamentally different question than what is my calling? And that is, who am I created to be? What Mm. gifts has God endowed me with? For instance... 
I learned about myself that I prefer one-on-one conversations. I had an opportunity to preach on Sunday and I loved it. I enjoy preaching. But if I'm going to spend my time doing anything, I want to meet with people one-on-one. And in my role as a supervisor at a 911 center, I don't get a chance to do that very often, although I get to meet with staff members one-on-one for a time. And that is actually one of my favorite things to do at my job because that's Mm. how I was designed. That's how I'm created. And so as I look to a future of counseling and sitting down one-on-one with somebody, I know I'm living into my calling because I know I'm wired to sit down and have meaningful conversation with one other human being. And so I can serve in a variety of roles and they can change and they can be somewhat satisfactory or not, but I still show up with my special giftings and my unique contribution. I need to be serving with that in mind wherever I am and in whatever role. Oh, I, that makes so much sense to me. You know, as I contemplate my future, uh, I've shared this with you before, I think, you know, I, I've asked myself, what does it mean to equip the next generation of pastors? And very similar to you, I am wildly passionate about one-on-one interactions. Maybe the fact that you love one-on-one interactions and I love one-on-one interactions suggests some reason of why we've successfully been able to talk on the phone every week for the last 20 years. Um, <laughs> Probably it, helped. It seems possible. But uh, this has really come to light for me as I contemplate equipping future people in ministry through something like a professor job where I'm teaching classes versus something like a coaching role where I am helping practitioners one-on-one And I lean so much towards opportunities that free me up to have one-on-one experiences. And I think you're so right. I think it is an easier, better, more meaningful question to ask, what am I equipped to do? What do I want to do? Rather than what is God calling me to do? Yes. Yes. And if I can use my wife as an example for a moment, she Mm. is wired to take care of other people. And she has done this in a variety of ways, not the least of which is to care for our own children. But she has been a teacher. She has trained and certified as an end-of-life care doula, which means taking care of the dying and their families. And she is exploring opportunities to serve at maternity homes to take care of young mamas who are about to deliver and don't have a strong support system. And she and I have a dream of opening up a pastoral guest house where pastors can come and rest and be restored and renewed. And so she's wonderfully gifted to do all of those things. Because she is wired to take care of people and to just love on them. And she does it very, very well. So knowing that about herself, she can literally transpose that gifting into a variety of things. 
And if she were to narrow herself by saying, what is God calling me to do? Which of these five, six things that I could do capably well is God calling me to? I think that's too limiting. You need to be you in whatever place you have an opportunity to serve in that moment. Mm. So I have this question then. I imagine as a pastor, you have been approached numerous times by parishioners or people in the community asking you this question, how do I know God's calling on my life? And yes. is there another piece or is there something, what, is, what do you tend to say to them in that moment? Is it exactly what we're saying in this conversation? Or do you have some other pieces that you try to bring into play as well? I'll be honest. It depends on the person. If the person is interested in thinking through the thoughts of it, I will take them to Genesis chapter one. I will walk through the idea that we are all called to be stewards of creation, bringers of fruitfulness, uh, establishers of order, whatever language I'm using in that particular moment, but that our calling is a function of our creation rather than our salvation. But all of that is driving to one direction, one action step for them. And that one action step is the same for somebody who wants to think it all through. Some folks don't want to think it through. They just want to do whatever God wants them to do. And that's totally fine. Um, <laughs> you know, whatever. And that one action step is just try stuff. You know, again, to, to hit this idea of discipleship and its role in the idea of finding one's calling, Jesus said like two sentences to Peter, and then he had him actually follow him and do a bunch of things with him. Mm. The way Peter discovered, in quotes, his calling, the way he found his unique opportunity to play a part in the grand story of what God was doing was to do things with Jesus. And then when Jesus went back to heaven, Peter did more things. How do you disciple somebody? How do you help a, a person figure out what they're called to do? Just try stuff. Yes. You know, like if we could release ourselves to adventurously, courageously, and curiously try experimental ways of being more like Jesus in the world, to love God and love our neighbor, I think the church would be great. Yeah. And I love the intentionality that that requires between the one being discipled and the discipler, because you have to kind of release them and then come back and evaluate how it went and then release them and evaluate how it went. The same process I was really fascinated by, we didn't actually get a chance to talk about this in our episode on managing leadership anxiety by Steve Cuss, but he had this experience when he first went into ministry, it was as a hospital chaplain. And he basically got one little pep talk that said, here's your pager. This is how it works. This is what floors you've been assigned. And all of a sudden the pager goes off. You've got to go counsel a grieving family who just lost a loved one in the emergency room and go. And they just like literally just turned them loose with no yeah. other instructions, no other anything. 
And then he fumbled his way through that encounter and then came back and they all talked about it. You know, the head chaplain and all the other chaplains, they, you know, they talk about it. They do the verbatim. And then he goes back out and he, you know, has some success and some failures and he comes back and he talks about it. And all the while he's being shaped into doing chaplaincy well. And mm -hmm. it had nothing to do with training up front. It had everything to do with the discipleship process that happened throughout the whole event. Yeah. And I think there's something wildly valuable about that kind of free space to try and mess up, but get feedback. Hmm. And there's no sense of identity fail or identity success. It doesn't change who you are because, of course, you're going to fail. Right. And sometimes you can actually have your identity confirmed for you. I think about mm -hmm. a friend of mine who for a lot of years wanted to become a police officer. And I don't know how many people out there have ever tried to get a job in public safety, whether it's 911 dispatch, corrections, police officer, various other roles. One of the things you have to do is go through a psyche valve. And the psyche valve is just pressure packed and kind of weird. And they do all sorts of things and it's wildly uncomfortable. But at the end of it, he magically can tell you or tell your prospective employer whether or not you're fit for this job. And my buddy had gone through multiple psyche evals for various police departments. And it's one of the last steps you go through. And he, quote unquote, failed every single one of them, not because he's psychotic, but because the evaluator didn't feel he was fit to be a police officer. And it happened, even though it were various police departments, he kept going to the same evaluator. And that evaluator finally looked at him and said, I actually think you are better suited to be a corrections officer than a police officer. And so lo and behold, he went and applied to be corrections. And he's been in that career ever since. And he says to this day that the psychiatrist was absolutely right. So sometimes mm. somebody can just speak into your life, watch your process and say, actually, I think you need to go this way. And it can just revolutionize your world. But you have to try. Oh, it's, it's so good. And that's a piece of it that my just try stuff thing doesn't quite capture is that it really should be just try stuff in a meaningful Christ-centered community. Mm -hmm. Because that community will give you feedback, not feedback in the sense of, hey, here's a way you could do that better. But that kind of life feedback that comes from you know, kind of the confessional living that we were talking about last year, uh, last year, last week. Has it been uh, that big of a week? It's been a long week, but <laughs> we were talking about this idea of confessional living and how we kind of slowly get to know one another. And there's this organic process of deepening relationships. And I think trying stuff in the midst of that kind of context absolutely will confirm or transform your sense of calling in the sense that we are now meaning it. Yes. Which highlights the importance of really close friendship, which is one of the things that we want to showcase and really reemphasize on this podcast, that these vital relationships that you can speak into one another and be able to 
set a course correction for somebody, that's just huge. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So before we run out of time, I want to make sure I check in on what else are you thinking about? Yeah. So in the history of our friendship, my thought today is not new. Or the category of my thought is not new. But for this podcast, this is the first time I think my thoughts have come from a history book. And so, Ooh. yeah, I am reading The Quartet by Joseph J. Ellis. Now, I know you you and I both Ooh. have read some of his books. Have you read this one? I haven't. I was just about to ask you if it's good. It's fantastic. He's a great author. He is a wonderful writer, a wonderful historian. So engaging. And he is doing a great job. I'm about, I don't know, 40% of the way through the book, maybe 50. He's doing a great job of talking about the state of the country, and he probably couldn't even call it a country, between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitutional Convention. So, you know, we signed the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776. But we didn't actually ratify a constitution until June of 1788. So 12 years, somewhere in the middle of that, we actually finally won the war or England just stopped fighting it. And we go on about our way and we're still operating under the Articles of Confederation. And there's this sense throughout all of the colonies that we got what we wanted a bunch of independent states that kind of loosely cooperated for the war, but now that it's over, everybody is just going about their, their own thing, and every state legislature is its own fiefdom, and never are we going to delegate any power to a federal authority because that smacks of what we just fought against. And so to the degree that anybody in the country even thought about those things, that was the general mood. And those whose job it was to think about those things, absolutely, they were going to hold to that line. But the quartet, as Joseph J. Ellis puts it, was George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. These are the four people who, through almost a, a mini miracle, replaced the Articles of Confederation with the Constitution and established a federal government to actually become a country. And so it's, as he phrases it, this second American revolution. And really four individuals with, a, you know, kind of a supporting cast, right? You've got like Robert Morris and Gouverneur Morris and other people playing supporting roles. But generally speaking, these four people changed the course of American history, both in the first revolution and then in the second, as we actually inaugurated a, an actual constitution. So I'm really fascinated by the mentality of the individual colonies at that point and the way that in which the deck was really stacked against these guys to even have a constitution and what the course of history would have looked like had they not succeeded in changing the tide. So fascinating. I highly recommend the book, but those are my thoughts. Oh man, I can't wait. I'll, I'll have to read it. It's on a growing long list of books I want to read that always seems to be getting longer never seems to be getting shorter, but uh, same someday, 
Someday. Yes. So what about you? Man, my thought comes from one of the tools from the coaching workshop that I was at a couple of weeks ago that I've just been, I ordered and got in the mail this week, and I find it to be absolutely fascinating. One of the things that coaching does is it kind of asks you where you're at and where you're headed, right? And so the problem is that often we get stuck in our own minds stuck in our own thoughts, and have a hard time figuring out where we're really at. And so one of the tools that you can use to help people identify where they're at or where they are going or any of those kinds of things, it's this set of postcards that are just a bunch of random images. One of them is just an image of a frozen mug and a sunset. One of them is a picture of a bright pink and yellow door next to a bright blue door. One is a zoomed in picture of an eye. And in in the, the eye, you can see a whole bunch of trees reflected. One is a dark, dark picture of an owl. One is a picture of hands with paint on them and all sorts of things, a hilly road, uh, all sorts of images that are intentionally evocative. And the idea is to spread them all out and let people pick from them which one most identifies where they're at right now or what they want right now. And as a matter of fact, I will take a picture of all of these and post it on our social media sometime to give you guys a chance to pick which image you like the most. But the thing that I find fascinating about all of this is that sometimes... We just need to circumvent our own brains. Sometimes we just need to let the rest of us, our intuition, our heart, our feelings, our gut reaction, inform us as much as our intellect. And one of the ways to do that is to use a visual image because a visual image can kind of get around our thinking a little bit. Uh, And I just find that whole process incredibly interesting. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, it really does, especially for me. I'm very words-oriented, and I think you are too. Absolutely. Whether it's the spoken word or the printed word, I am drawn to words and the thoughts that they convey. So I can live in my head a lot but to step out of that and to step into a more evocative picture and allow myself to just be guided by that for a moment really flips the script for a bit. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, when I was doing my coaching training, he did this exercise with us. And the picture that I chose was one of a set of glasses. And in the set of glasses, What's in the the background is in focus, and out around the glasses, it's out of focus. And it really connected with me because there were some questions that I had about my life and my future, and I was trying to gain focus. And that one image really became the narrative for the entire week that I was at this training. And I looked at it every day, and I referred to it regularly. 
I think these kinds of things that are evocative can not only help us skip our brains a little bit, but they can become just powerful symbols for us that take on greater and greater meaning in a way that helps us define reality. Mm. Yes. I have this experience sometimes in reading the Psalms, because Mm. when I think of a tree planted by a stream, I'm an Oregonian. I love trees. So I picture a fully flourishing oak tree that has been there for hundreds of years and has just grown in girth and height. And it is just beautiful to sit under right next to a stream. That to me is an image of solidity and constancy that I really strive for because of the image. Mm. The image helps me. I think that makes sense. I think that's a lot of why Jesus taught in short, intentionally evocative images that we call parables. I think you're absolutely right. And, and let me use this as a transition moment. I really am curious to get feedback from people uh, who are listening with us. Please take a moment, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And when you see us post like, share, comment, and especially on this upcoming post in the next week, when I post a bunch of these pictures, I would love to know of the pictures that I post, which one most captures where you're at right now and why. So be looking especially for that particular post. I can't wait to find out what people post and to engage with everybody I really do. That's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is being able to connect with everybody. But we also like to share a little bit about ourselves, and that's why we post on social media this Which Josh question. And this week's Which Josh question is, Which Josh memorized his childhood library card number and still knows it? We're both huge readers, but this one is mine. I still know my library card number. It is no longer active. I have gone on the, uh, so I grew up in Portland, as I've said before, and I've gone on the Multnomah County website to find out if my number still works. So it does not. So I feel safe in telling you all 2116801489744. So that was my library card How number. How many digits is that? I don't, I don't know. That I don't know, man. I looked so smart there for a second, and now you just ruined you it. Did. I just, man, what is that old saying? Mind as sharp as a steel trap and about as interesting? <laughs> that that might be it. That oh, might be man. it. So, oh, well, maybe I'll look smart next week. Oh, my goodness. Well, somebody might. <laughs> um, but that's amazing. I can't believe you know that. That is crazy to me because I have a hard time remembering those kinds of things. And I am surrounded by people like you who can remember those things very easily, or at least very effectively. And uh, I have so much respect for people who have good memory skills, because that is a gift that is always useful in life and may or may not contribute to your calling. (laughs) 
That was a nice way to bring it full circle. There you go. <laughs> All right. Are we on for next week? All right. Absolutely. I can't wait. I'll talk to you then, okay? All right. Talk to you then.